Welcome to IRAC, a show where we identify issues, provide the rules, give an analysis, and sometimes come to a conclusion. This is an SULC podcast. Welcome to IRAC episode five. Uh, this is your co host and co producer, Jonathan Sanji, current 2L at Southern University Law Center. With me, I have Professor Donald North. He teaches a plethora of classes here, and today he's going to talk to us a little bit about a topic that's near and dear to his heart. It's domestic battery abuse. Professor North, why don't you go ahead and take it away? Thank you, Jonathan. The first thing I want to do is talk about domestic abuse battery and lay out the elements of the offense. Domestic abuse battery is the intentional use of force or violence committed by one household member or a family member upon the person of another household member or family member. One of the things that I want to talk about is that this statute has been expanded over the years and it's been changed multiple times since its original creation. This statute basically now is being used by law enforcement to deal with situations involving not just domestic abuse between a spouse and another spouse or a lover and another lover, but it's really they're dealing with a lot of situations involving parental contact. Okay, So you have a situation where a father who uses discipline against his child you know, may end up being charged with domestic abuse battery, okay? And so what I'm trying to do now is, as I look at this statute, is deal with what happens on a first conviction, a second conviction, and things like that. So on a first conviction, notwithstanding any provision law to the contrary, the offender shall be fined not less than $300, nor more than $1,000, and shall be in prison for not less than 30 days, nor more than six months. At least 48 hours of the sentence imposed should be served without benefit of parole, probation, or suspension of sentence. I think when they were developing this statute, they never uh, really anticipated the level of interaction that would occur between a parent and a teenage daughter, for example, or a parent and a teenage son. And so what I'm, what I'm really trying to study now is what impact these types of statutes are having on the the, the the family and the, the type of discipline that's being imposed in the home, okay? So if you're talking about domestic abuse battery, when it talks about a battery, is the use of force or violence. Does that mean then that a father cannot use force or violence in the exercise of discipline against his child? Well, we know that the defense itself to maybe a domestic abuse battery may be that a parent has parental authority to exercise discipline of that child. But when it comes to the use of force of violence, does that force of violence include physical force? Does it include non-physical force? Or are we just talking about what about the use of language that the child may find offensive? Is that a type of force or violence, you know, that the statute encompasses, okay? Professor North, if I could interject just to make sure that both myself and the listeners have a grasp of this. Are you implying that parents under this statute theoretically wouldn't have the ability to, like, spank their child or be, uh, I don't want to say verbally abusive, but to reprimand them in a, in a, in a verbal fashion? What, what I'm saying is that this statute encompasses the possibility that a parent who uses force as a type of discipline may be in violation of the statute. So, for example, if a parent decides to to grab a child and try to force that child to do something, that's the type of force of violence that this statute is designed to prevent. So if a mother grabs her 
small child, let's say a five-year-old daughter, by the arm and drags her through Walmart because the child is just being unruly and isn't listening. Theoretically, that mother has violated the statute because she's violently dragging that little girl around Walmart, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that when they created this statute, I don't think they were really t contemplating, you know, the fact that this type of statute may interfere with the normal family relationship. Now, some people say that a normal family relationship does not include violence, okay? But in the exercise of discipline, the statute allows reasonable discipline, okay? And so the question becomes, if you have an unruly child, what qualifies as reasonable discipline? And I think that's something that I really want to put on the minds of people as we go forward. Another thing I wanted to point out is that in the, in the definition of these uh, types of uh, domestic abuse battery situations, one of them deals with serious bodily injury, which means bodily injury that involves unconsciousness, extreme physical pain, or protracted and obvious disfigurement, or protracted loss of impairment of the function of a bodily member or ergonomic faculty, or substantial risk of death. To me, that kind of implies that the type of injury that the parent is applying to the child is more serious than a normal spanking, so to speak, or a normal use of force or discipline. I just think that depending on where you're at, at the time this occurs, and I, because when a child goes to school and the child is inspected by the teacher and the teacher discovers that the child has redness or bruising, okay, then I think by statute they're required to notify social services, you know, that that child appears to be a victim of uh, domestic abuse. And I think that that battery, that type of situation can create instability in the household, okay. Now, but another thing I want to talk about, we use the term strangulation. Strangulation means intentionally impeding the normal breathing or circulation of the blood by applying pressure on the throat or neck or by blocking the nose or mouth of the victim. I, I guess what I'm really implying is that we need to uh, separate this statute to where an aspect of this statute deals with adults and another aspect of the statute deals with the normal running and day-to-day -day operation of a normal household, you know. And so, uh, if you and I have a child, I have a I have a daughter. My daughter's not unruly, so I don't have to worry about this type of a uh, situation. But I am familiar with members of, of my circle who have been involved in situations with their own children, where there have been some very unruly, unruly children. Okay. So I just wanted to talk about that, introduce, and talk about that to some extent, and then talk about what happens on these different types of convictions. Okay. And I think you're going to find that the penalty for domestic abuse battery continues to increase as the number of offenses increase. Well, you know, if we're doing it because on the first offense, it says that you're fined not less than $300, no more than $1,000, and she'll be in prison for not less than 30 days, no more than six months. I want to talk about the, that penalty, but I also want to talk about, for, for law students' purposes, what was it at? Oh, yeah. It says, one household member or family member upon the person of another household member or family member. There is no relationship required there. You understand? You can be in a household, because it defines household in the text here. Household member means any person of the opposite sex presently or formerly living in the same residence with the offender as a spouse, whether married or not, or any child presently or formerly living in the same residence with the offender or any child of the offender, regardless of whether the child resides. Does that seem exactly imply to you that it only applies to, to just male-female? No, like, like you said, anyone in the household. Mm -hmm. But I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a Louisiana 
criminal code. So you said you were researching this to see how it affects the family dynamic. That's right. Do other states have statutes that are similar to this that clarify and separate, like you said, the adult and the normal operations of a household? That's a good question. I haven't completed my research in that area. Okay. But that's something I probably need to check and make sure. So that's all I wanted to talk to you about when it comes to domestic abuse battery because these, I just want to make sure you understand, you're in a household, even though the two of you are not married or not seeking to get married, you may still be in a household for purpose of this domestic abuse statute. Yeah, but if, uh, to interject, I guess, back to the question you asked, Zach, if I remember the statute you read, it said member of the opposite sex. It says household member means any person of the opposite sex presently or formerly living in the same residence with the offender as a spouse. Okay. Yeah, it says person of the opposite sex living mm -hmm. with former member as a spouse, which would lead me to believe, unless I'm mistaken, that mm -hmm. this would exclude homosexuality. That's right. Like homosexuals would therefore That's not right. be able to be convicted of domestic abuse regardless of how abusive they may or may not That's be. That's right. That's right. The statute does seem to imply that it only applies to a male-female type relationship. Does that mean well, then, then that a father couldn't get convicted of for instance, like beating his son or a mother of beating her daughter or something to that effect. The only problem with that is that when it says family member, family members mean spouses, former spouses, parents, children, stepchildren, stepchildren, foster parents, and foster children. So then it says, with the offender of, as a spouse, whether married or not, or any child presently or formerly living in the same residence with the offender. So it seems to exclude sex as a factor when it comes to children. Well, that would also, back to what Jonathan said about gay relationships, mm -hmm. a spouse, now that uh, the Supreme Court has decided that gay people can't get married, spouses would also fall under that thing. So it seems that as part of the family unit, this opposite sex is no longer applicable. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I, I would think that's something that we probably need to look at too. I would hope so, because otherwise it means if someone, right. if a man beats his husband to death or near to death, then There's no he gets off scot-free, and that would just be... I know what should have happened when the, when the landmark case, Supreme Court case came down, they should have gone back and looked at these statutes to try to revamp them to make sure that they comply with the new Supreme Court ruling. All right, that's all I have on domestic abuse battery. Questions? Okay. So, back to Jonathan's point. Let's say that Jonathan and I and some other guy are living, or the three of us live together as roommates in an apartment. Mm -hmm. Seemingly, it would be that domestic abuse is anything that happens within that household, but mm -hmm. then it clarifies, or it goes further to define the opposite sex. And since we don't have a familial relation, there can be no domestic abuse or domestic violence between the three of us. That's what it appears on the face of the statute. Okay. But that doesn't mean you can't be charged with a battery, right. a different type of battery. Okay. Just not domestic abuse battery. Yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. And does domestic abuse carry a higher fine or a higher penalty than a traditional battery? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, depending on which, I was just thinking about which type of battery you're talking about. I'm just going to go to, a, I thought I was reading this, a first offense. On a, on a second offense, on a conviction of a second offense, notwithstanding any provision of law to the contrary, Regardless of whether the second offense occurred before or after the first conviction, the defendant shall be fined not less than $750 nor more than $1,000 and shall be imprisoned with or without hard labor for, for not less than 60 days nor more than one year. So that seems to be tantamount to your standard misdemeanor. And then it says at least 14 days. But what 
Well, what, what I'm, another thing I was trying to highlight earlier is that these mandatory jail time periods where mm -hmm. at least 14 days of the sentence imposed should be served without benefit of parole, probation, suspension, or sentence, as if that's going to have some impact on whether or not a person does violent harm to someone after that. I think that the whole idea that the, I think that what they were looking at is trying to see if they could come up with a cooling off period, you know, where yeah, a person, if he's in jail for 14 days, he's had enough time to think about it and not, you know. So I'm not sure. I, I, first of all, I don't believe in cooling off periods, but that seemed to say that this is a cooling off period. But I, I don't think it's been, I don't think it's been effective since Louisiana is leading the nation, one of the leading nations of domestic homicides. Yeah, wouldn't that violence. just aggravate the issue? Like. You beat your wife and she makes you go to jail. You sit in jail for 14 days just stewing about how that woman you just beat put you in jail. I can't imagine that's going to make you feel much better when you get out. No, the problem is that the person either has to notify his job or he may even lose his job after being gone for 14 days. Mm -hmm. Okay, And so that throws another different you know, problem in this, in this situation because now he doesn't have employment. And so that's going to... You know, that's going to aggravate the situation to where he's not going to be that easy to get along with in the household. You know. Okay. All right. Well, Professor North, thank you very much for talking to us about this incredibly serious issue. Um, and now we're going to talk about the externship. And now we're going to go ahead and talk about externships. So. Okay. So the the way the program is set up at the law center. Okay. So the first thing a student has to do is go to the website. I'm going to the website, it's going to identify the criteria and ask some questions and answers, you know, on the website that will help the students understand what we call traditional and non-traditional externship. A traditional externship is like the district attorney's office, the public defender's office, the U.S. The US attorney's office, the First Circuit. Those are places that we've had relationships over the last 35, 40 years where students are able to go into those offices work with those supervisors in those offices, and then we'll give them course credit. All right? It requires you to do at least 20 hours per week, you know, depending on what your supervisor expects of you. And, but it, at the same time, it allows you to get on-the-job training and experience about things that are going on in the practice of law. What you learn in the classroom should be, I don't say mortified, but should be solidified by your actual seeing it being done in an actual courtroom at the DA's office or public defender's office. So if you're in a criminal procedure course and you have talked about a search without a warrant, when you go to the DA's office, if you can see how a search without a warrant is created and what the substance is that's necessary for that warrant, and we believe that that'll make your learning more valuable. And we say valuable in the sense that it adds value to what you're doing. So when you speak about it, you can not only speak from experience, but it puts it into your long-term memory. Okay. Now, those are traditional externships. Also, we have non-traditional externships. We have students who worked in the White House. They worked at the legislative office in Texas, at the DA's office, uh, what we call the Texas Legislative Program, where the students will go to Texas. They'll stay the entire semester, and they'll work with a particular legislator, and they'll do anything from the crafting and drafting of bills to the uh, participation in group sessions or uh, contact meetings for the senators and things like that are trying to develop bills for that particular area. Those are your non-traditional externships. We also have places where students are working in law offices all around the state, okay, not just in Baton Rouge, in Lafayette and New Orleans, and uh, we have, a, they're working for judges as uh, law clerks for judges. They're working as uh, assistant administrators in the uh, New Orleans police intervention program or something like that, try to see if there's a way in which they can bring the 
police department and the community closer together in their thinking. So students involved monitoring, we have students who are working with university professors in their, on their research projects to try to develop different ways in which the uh, student population can uh, learn using the broadband connections and things like that. And then we have also, so there are a lot of different places where students are working. A lot, we have students who've gone to Japan and performed externships in Japan and different places around the country. So what does a student do? When a student is in an externship, the externship meets twice a week because it's a three-hour course, or it can be up to 12 hours. But we generally deal with, with, with just one course, a three-hour course. The student works his 20 hours. He turns, in a, he turns in a weekly time sheet. And on that time sheet, he will indicate what type of things he was doing during that week. We meet every week or every other week, and we review the time sheet. We review his duties and responsibilities to make sure he's on task and that the supervisor does not have him doing something that's not in line with what the externship was designed for, okay? Every student in law school should do an externship before he graduates, okay? Because if he has an idea, for example, you say you want to be a corporate attorney. Well, go work in a law office that handles corporate cases or something like that so you have real-world experience and you can truly evaluate what it is that you're interested in doing. Questions? Yeah, Professor North, if students are working at law firms over the summer or in the public sector working for a government office mm -hmm. and they would like to get externship credit for working during the summer, must they be enrolled in summer courses? Absolutely. They okay. must pay their fees mm -hmm. and be enrolled in the summer school and then they have to, it's just like a regular class. Okay. It's, not, it's like a regular class. And you said you'd mentioned that uh, in the past students have gone as far as Japan to do externships. I mean, I, I'm not going to ask for like a specific number, but how often do you think these international externships happen? And how hard are they to get into? Well, it really depends on the students. You know, we, we go through phases, you know. This is the third year that we've, we've been doing this for a long time. But it really depends on the students. Some students come here with those connections already in existence. We, we didn't search out or create that externship for that student. Her father uh, was a military officer who had an experience over there, and so she was able to make those contacts, okay? So a lot of times, students who already have those existing contacts when they come to law school, and a lot of them, they, they, they develop while they're in law school through the for chance that Pierre creates, uh, creates externships, you know, as much as anyone else around him, but he he has these these in, these, in, uh, these interactions with uh, uh, different agencies around the country. Uh, Apple, uh, I'm trying to think of something besides Apple. Uh, we have an we have a, a, a doctor who comes out here during the summer from uh, Northwestern, and we have students working with them. And what they do, they do investigate cold case investigations. Okay, and they've been doing we've been doing that now for like five years. We have other externships with students uh, whose parents did not work for the U.S. Attorney's Office, but they were familiar with someone who did, and they introduced those students to them. We have other situations. For example, if you have an interest in a particular externship in a particular area, then you let me know, and I can make the contact for you. Yeah, I can talk to the DA or the public defender. I have grown to know most of the guys around the state, but they, the changeover doesn't occur that much, but I've got to know most of them. Same thing with judges. When there are judge conferences and things like that, I, I go there, I meet with the judges, I offer the students as a possible externship opportunity for students and for those judges, you know, so we do that. One thing I try to, I try to balance the, the need for externships, you know, because now you can be paid. 
something. You can be paid in an externship. You don't have to just work for free. So if you're able to, like for example, a lot of students don't understand this emerging trend in, in gaming, the gaming mm -hmm. industry, you know, across the state. And I keep talking about computers, but there is a, a growing area where, like for example, Apple is a trillion-dollar company. They're about to be a trillion-dollar company. So there, there has to be legal work in the, in the development of patents, you know, and we've had students working in the patent office in developments of patents and the development of, you know, uh, computer systems that provide protection for citizens from uh, spyware and ransomware and things like that. Well, fantastic. I think that wraps up any questions I might have. And any students who have any questions, they're free to contact you at your email address. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, I, would, I would encourage them to contact Heather Key. Who is, a, who is a student uh, representative who works with each student to make sure that she, that students feel comfortable about making their decisions about where they want to be. Uh, one thing that I encourage students to do is before the end of the semester, come to the externship class, meet students who are already out there working in the externships. There are like 26 of them this semester. Come, come meet them, you know, find out what areas they're working in, and encourage your colleagues to do the same thing. Absolutely. Well, you heard it from Professor North. If you have any questions, you can either email him or Miss Key. I believe it'll be uh, Heather underscore Key at SULC.edu, or you can email Professor North at dnorth at SULC.edu. Otherwise, uh, Professor North, thank you very much for coming thank and you speaking for to us. Me. Thank you. And uh, we're out. We're out. This episode of IRAC featured music by Eric Zarr and bensound.com. I would also like to thank our executive producers, Jessica Hawkins, Arthur Williams, Jonathan Sanji, Kelly Chuku, Anionwood, and Zachary Harrison.